Welcome to the Digiday Podcast and to the last episode of what has been one hectic year for both the world and for the industries we cover. I'm Keely Barber, Senior Reporter at Digiday, and to see out 2020, myself and my co-host Tim Peterson are interviewing our colleagues, Digiday's own reporters and editors. We'll be turning the page and hearing from them about the big marketing and media trends they'll be following in 2021. Later in the episode, Tim will be sitting down with senior news editor Seb Joseph and senior marketing editor Christina Monlos about their beats. But first, I'm joined by senior editor Max Willens and managing editor Sarah Jurdy to talk about the media in the new year. Max, Sarah, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Greetings from Philadelphia. Well, welcome both. And I think uh, we'd be remiss to not talk about 2020 and some of the themes that we saw come out of this past year. Um, I know we have a whole package of stories that'll be kind of covering this topic of um, how the industry was impacted in 2020, but maybe let's start with Max. What are some of the things that um, in particular you saw, whether they were businesses or um, different revenue streams that really took a toll in 2020 um, that you could see still being impacted in the new year? Yeah, I mean, I, I think what's so interesting about this year and this is something that I started hearing from different sources as early as, you know, the summer really was how a lot of what happened this year, as crazy and hopefully anomalous as this year has been, is likely to continue. So a lot of publishers spent a lot of this year having to work on really tight turnarounds because brands and agencies didn't feel comfortable with kind of making long-term plans. And I think that even though next year is likely to be a little less hectic, knock on wood, than 2020 has been, I think that you're going to see a lot of that persist. And kind of the cousin or related uh, trend with that is the idea of brands and agencies really trying to sort of simplify who they work with uh, and working a lot more closely with lots or with a handful of, of really trusted partners on lots of things and an end to what people used to describe as the, the promiscuity of, of media buyers. And I think that's interesting, A, because it's something that we've been sort of hearing about for a long time, but B, because, you know, especially because we're likely to be entering into a recession or a continued recession kind of environment. If you're a publisher that's on the outside looking in of those relationships, that's a very troubling trend, especially when you compound it, the collapse of the third party cookie, which mm-hmm. made it a possibility to make some money in an open environment. And so if you, you add all those things together and it, it really, really, really exacerbates the haves and have nots dynamic that I think has defined digital media for, for quite a while. Yeah. And um, going off of that quickly, I think the end of like, as you said, promiscuity of um, media buyers and um, agencies and things like that. Um, do you think it'll kind of fall back to the publishers that have a strong first party data strategy um, underneath them that will have the most success with keeping those um, contacts and keeping those brands spending with them in 2021? Yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be really interesting to see how all that unfolds, right? I mean, I think that even for publishers that kind of are in a position to have a strong hand when it comes to their first party data, it does seem like there's going to be this kind of by committee approach. I, I was talking earlier this week with uh, somebody who oversees ad operations for a, uh, let's call it a large publisher. And it sounds like everything is on the table for for this this company. They're, they're looking at you know, solutions from LiveRamp. They're looking at solutions from the trade desk. They're, you know, looking under their own hoods to sort of figure out what kinds of stuff they can they can bring to the market. Um, even though people have seen this coming for a really long time, it, it it's in some ways so different from what they most publishers have been thinking about for the last half decade that they they have to kind of take a kitchen sink approach to this. Um, and in that kind of environment, anything that's that's really you know differentiated and strong and, and easy for a marketer or agency to use is going to have a real leg up. And so I think that's it's going to be really interesting to see, A, what kinds of improvements publishers can make to their own first party offerings, and B, also what happens sort of, you know, when more and more publishers kind of get up to speed and, and do have something that they feel pretty confident with in the market. 
um, does that just create kind of a, you know, frazzling and, and bewildering of the, the buy side where they look out at the landscape and go, this is too much. This is too difficult. Like all of you have different taxonomies. This is crazy. I don't know what I'm, what's going on. Uh, and so watching that dynamic unfold, I think is going to be really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and Sarah, I'm curious, um, you are new to the Digiday team, but you've been covering um, publishing and in, you've been in this world for quite a while. So I'm curious, like, what are some of the trends um, from 2020 that, um, I don't know, might have struck you as interesting or as something that you could see sticking around um, in the new year? Yeah, um, I think that is the big question heading into the new year. You know, what of all of these different things that publishers have done this past year, what's going to stick? Um, and more importantly, thinking about what consumer behaviors that they were catering to, um, you know, what's going to stick in the next year. Um, I think it's really interesting taking a look at 2020 specifically. I mean, in mid-March, when the coronavirus started spreading throughout the United States and they had to pivot their, their business models, um, really seeing the effect in advertising in, in Q2. And then almost a lot of them having the books balanced by the end of the year. So I think something that'll be on the on the top of minds of a lot of publishers going into next year is what cash flow really looks like. You know, if you take a look at this year in particular, um, based on how advertising seemed to return by the end of the year, the books could be balanced. But I think it's going to be really crucial as we move into 2021 to see what sort of revenue opportunities they do see, especially as you know, Max mentioned, you know, it doesn't look like we're going to be to be seeing any sort of relief from this pandemic anytime soon. I mean, even with the vaccine, we'll be in this um stay-at-home order likely continuing to new year. So what sort of revenue opportunities are they seeing given the teachings that they have seen this year? Um, I think something that'll be sort of at the top of the minds of all publishers is what they do with e-commerce. A lot of publishers have been in this space and we're in this space heading into the pandemic, um, but it'll be interesting to see how they mature um, and where they see the opportunity growth being. Um, and also, too, how they handle the event side of their business. You know, many of these publishers have gotten into in-person events. Um, and then, you know, of course, Digiday included had to pivot to a, a virtual model. Um, and I think a lot of publishers are approaching next year knowing that there is some value in having a virtual component. So I think we'll see more publishers experiment with a hybrid model, some sort of in-person opportunity if, we're, if we'll get there as a society, and then also having some sort of virtual component that runs alongside an in-person event as a, as a complementary offering. I think what's really fascinating, just to pick up on that, Sarah, is the, the question of sort of what endures when, especially when it comes to events. I mean, I think that if you're you know in the B2B space, it's kind of easy to imagine a world where there's a conference that like you probably should attend for your job. Um, but maybe either your company doesn't want to shell out for a plane ticket or you've got a million things going on. And so it's, there's a world in which it's very easy to imagine, you know, attending it virtually in your pajamas or, you know, while you're at your desk, but I'm frankly a lot more bearish on the B2C version of that enduring, uh, which I think is really interesting because you, you talk to publishers that that stood up virtual B2C events this year, and and they all seem to really think that there's traction there and that there's going to be an appetite for people to continue to, you know, kind of watch a Zoom version of an event at home moving forward. And I, you know, they're closer to this than I am, but just thinking about it purely from an anecdotal perspective, like once the people in my life are vaccinated and safe and it's warm outside, like I'm not spending a second longer in front of the computer that I have to. And so I think it's going to be really, really interesting to see how that stuff unfolds because that's the kind of thing that I think is really, really hard to tease out in an environment like the one we've been in. It's, you know, you can be sort of in a position where everybody is, is sort of s struggling through and gritting their way through the, these weird conditions where we all are stuck in front of our computers. But it's, I think, really hard to tease out just how we're all going to, our consumer behavior is going to change uh, when we, it has the opportunity to. Definitely. It's easy now to say that there's still value in getting in front of a computer screen and, and trying to connect over Zoom. But when there's that ability to connect in person, I mean, is anyone going to miss this kind of environment um, when you can't just like head off into a corner and have a private conversation? Right. I, I think um, like on that hybrid events model for a second, um, I recently wrote about what publishers are doing to try to, I guess, 
the the keyword was like break up the monotony of being on a computer 24-7. And it seemed like a lot of the strategies that were in place, um, it was about getting people off the screen but still be in their homes, um, whether it was like cooking or, or doing like a a walk-a-thon with like a virtual, you know, log into a Zoom and you kind of like talk to people while you're walking kind of thing. But it still felt very much like it seems like the second, again, to your point, Max, like the second people can be with other people, that's the strategy. Like this seems like a interesting middle ground that consumer publishers have to do in order to get a, keep an audience interested because, um, I don't know, Instagram lives for me at least seem very overdone at this point. Like I don't want to be on social media longer than I need to. But um, yeah, I think that's that's an interesting thing for consumer publishers in particular in approaching this kind of like hybrid model. Um, but I also wanted to talk about like the e-commerce side of things as well. Um, uh, Sarah, you mentioned earlier that that was an area that a lot of publishers have kind of had a, a strong um, presence in heading into this. But those businesses, I think, in a lot of ways have kind of made up for the advertising struggles that um, publishers have faced. So um, a big thing I've noticed is the um, growth of marketplaces that publishers are kind of building out right now. Um, I think uh, a lot of maybe niche publishers or special interest publishers have kind of set out their um, own marketplaces. But what have you guys kind of seen in this um, e-commerce space that you expect will be a, a growth trend in 2021? I, I'm with you on the marketplace thing. I mean, that, that, that was the thing I actually, I feel like I predicted that uh, on last year's version of this podcast because it just taps so neatly in the abstract, at least, into a lot of the things that, that publishers sort of feel are core to their value propositions, right? Like they have highly engaged audiences with a highly, you know, well-defined set of interests and, and you know, needs. They have good relationships with, uh, in most cases, retailers and brands who want to reach those consumers. Uh, brands have, I think, made a ton of strides in figuring out how to kind of execute around e-commerce uh, and consumers are a lot more comfortable in transacting. And so you kind of taught all of that up and it, it feels like a great opportunity to, to explore marketplaces further for, for publishers. I will say again, also though, that it's like completely foreign to what most of them do right now. And so the sort of mm -hmm. investment necessary to kind of get one off the ground might be prohibitive, particularly for publishers that don't maybe have a lot of extra capital lying around, but to the extent that you can kind of fake your way in, in the direction of one, uh, either through vendor integrations or whatever, I think is something we're going to start see on, seeing a lot more of. I think the other thing that you're going to start seeing too is publishers trying to kind of get closer to the transaction and, and to their uh, customers, really. So in the affiliate model that sort of powers most of this right now, you have this situation where, you know, they're kind of getting everybody together, but then everybody takes off and leaves and... I think publishers are starting to realize, particularly those that have been doing this a little bit longer than others, that there's this opportunity to sort of build a deeper understanding of, of who those people are. So you look at like a BuzzFeed, uh, for example, trying to entice its users to log in and create wish lists of products um, so that you can sort of start to build a more three-dimensional picture of who that person is. So that person that bought the you know, candle that smells like Texas. Um, what else did they buy? Did, did they buy, you know, Snuggies? Did they buy something that, you know, helps them cook at home? All of a sudden, you know, a couple, three, not even transactions, but just like items saved. And you've got like a really interesting consumer segment. And if you build a, some kind of scale there, there's a, there's kind of a lot of knockout effects there that are very interesting. It's not easy. I mean, you know, any publisher will tell you that getting a reader to log in is, is difficult. So finding the, like figuring out which character stick to use to do that is going to be um, an interesting challenge. But I, I think that's another one you're going to start to see a lot more of moving forward. Just to build off that too, Max, I mean, we saw, we've learned from the pandemic that it has accelerated consumer trends, right? If nothing else. So um, to your point about publishers really needing the infrastructure to build on these models, you know, I take a look at BuzzFeed and this served as a good opportunity for them to build on the data set that they had previously on all their users and to be that touch point uh, for readers to get into e-commerce. Um, 
but not everyone has entered the year with that sort of infrastructure in place. And so as we head into next year, it'll be interesting to see who can really compete in this area and who will have to sort of take their foot off the pedal because they just didn't go into this year already thinking about e-commerce in such a big way and hadn't already devoted the teams to sort of capture these new data sets to determine where to go next. Um, so it'll be interesting to see who can build on that momentum and, and who will say, I guess, sort of have it peter out because it can't compete in this space. Yeah. Uh, that's a that's a good point. And I think kind of going off of the um, maybe like consumer revenue um, branch of thought, um, looking at like subscriptions, I think that was also a huge thing that um, grew in 2020. Um, there was a few, you know, instances where subscriptions like particularly had a, a boom or a, a growth period. Um, and I, I've talked to a couple publishers myself, um, some on this podcast about um, the periods of growth and then if they expect that they will have the same kind of growth um, looking at the next year. And I think for some, they're thinking it won't be at the same speed, but they're hoping to at least maintain the people that they collected in 2020. Um, what are your thoughts or what have you been hearing about um, subscription businesses and um, you know how, that they, how they can continue growing next year if that is the thought process? I think you raise a good point in that they'll want to sustain the momentum that they saw um, this year. So the big question going into 2021 will be, how will we keep these subscribers instead of necessarily, how do we grow the subscriber base? Um, and I think a lot of that comes down to user experience. You know, what is it like when they log in to, to read their content and their material? Uh, what can they offer the membership package to kind of keep them as an engaged consumer? And have they, in this past year, become part of their habits? Have they, when they wake up every morning, go to the site to check the news or how do they engage with that content? Um, and I think a lot of that also comes down to, as we've discussed, how they're collecting data on these readers. You know, what do the signals say about the user experience and how are they going to use these teachings and learnings from this year to inform how they still maintain that membership going into next year? Yeah, I think everybody that I talked to about subscriptions has said that retention is the like almost like a bigger priority than acquisition for 2021 uh, for all the reasons that, that Sarah laid out. Um, and also for the other reason uh, being particularly on the news side that uh, a lot of people are either some, some combination of either worried or just curious to see if there's going to be what uh, one source referred to as the Biden slide. Mm -hmm. So we had the Trump bump and now we have the Biden slide potentially. And I think that that's a really good question to ask him. I'm hopefully going to have a story about that uh, soon-ish. And it's, it's, a, it's a tough question to answer, right? Because it's, again, it's one of those things where like, there sort of is no comparison to the torqued up, you know, everything is at 11 kind of fire drill feeling that uh, news was, has been at over the last several years. And it's, it seems, you know, pretty easy for me to conclude that that kind of mania was really good for publishers that that wrote about the news and covered Trump and, and wrote about what it all meant. And, you know, what happens when we have a, a polit or, you know, a president who seems pretty clearly not like that, and, you know, what the ramifications are, I think is going to be really interesting. So I think it'd be, as you say, like, not necessarily like playing defense, but it'll be more about kind of like consolidating and, and fortifying uh, what a lot of folks built over the last 12 months. Yeah, I think going off of that, um, a, com a couple of the conversations I was having um, around this kind of like end of year look back um, around subscriptions, I think a couple people kind of talked about um, the potential of losing international subscribers because the U.S., like U.S.-based news publishers in particular, losing international subscribers because um, – you know, once the election kind of settles down, is there anything to really like pay attention to that closely that's worth paying for kind of thing? Or, um, you know, if say like the Washington Post is your third subscription, um, but you live in, I don't know, London, you're probably going to be subscribed to your local publishers more than you would likely be subscribed to Washington Post. So I think that's something to keep an eye on, too, is like whether or not they can retain these like international audiences I think you bring up a good point too, um, and not to get entirely off track, but so much of living through this past year has been so um, 
geographic based, you know, it has been really personal local mm-hmm. experiences. And so, you know, theoretically, readers would turn to local news for that coverage. Um, but with the health of, of local news being what it is, they've turned to other outlets to sort of fill in the gaps. Um, so, you know, thinking about what readers want to see, uh, where they're engaging with the material, um, even if that is on a local basis, I think it's going to be pretty crucial to determine how that coverage then is guided into next year. You know, what do readers actually want to read about and what are they coming back for? Yeah. Um, I think to that point too, and I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but um, uh, I've covered a couple instances of like local news publishers um, focusing on, I guess they they saw a a decent amount of growth from advertising um, around the election and, you know, around, to your point, that very concentrated focus on um, regional news. And um, I'm curious, like, have you had any conversations about local news um, with local news publishers or advertisers who might still have an interest in in that area or I don't know any thoughts on local publishing well guys I would love it if we could solve um you know making sure that it is a a viable uh business model I think that New York and DC based uh especially publishers are, are quick to agree that local news is in a crisis mode and I think this year only accelerated that um I think we'll see more of, and Max, you, you brought this up previously, but you know, more of a nonprofit model, um, more of a donation-based model at the local level um, to really get that reader support. Um, you know, because I think it's clear that a majority advertising-backed um, model or even a wholly subscription-backed model doesn't really work at the local level. And they've really suffered this past year because of it, because when local businesses had to shutter and didn't have um, the cash flow to to put in those local ad dollars, um, those local news sources were really at the forefront of seeing those effects. Um, so I don't know what you guys are thinking in terms of how we might see more sustainable cash flow for local news moving forward. But I think this year especially has proved just how crucial it will be to have those news organizations viable. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's it's crazy how you think about the sort of acceleration um, or the, the word accelerant that got used so much this year. And I feel like the people that felt that hardest were local newspapers, you know? I mean, on balance, digital ad spending is going to wind up having dropped, but not you know, in the catastrophic way people expected, but print spending just fell off a cliff. And, you know, that's what people having used metaphors like that for years, but it, you know, fell off, I guess, a really bad cliff uh, this year. And so all of a sudden local publishers that might've thought I got five years to, to, you know, rebuild this ship before it sinks. Now, now are looking at their, their timeline and thinking, it's less than that. And that's, so it's, it's in that sense, it's really, really dire. And then also to, to kind of, you know, further heightening this problem as Sarah alluded to, like, you know, the national advertisers kind of, you know, froze in the headlights for six weeks earlier this year, but then they went, okay, okay. And then they resumed their spending. But a lot of, you know, if you owned a, you know, large group of restaurants or, you know, a car dealership in, you know, some, small region and you couldn't, you you had no money coming in the door. Like, why would you spend money on advertising? It just, it was this kind of really, really ugly one-two punch that a lot of local publishers uh, had to endure. But I think that this coming year, you're going to start seeing to what Sarah said, a lot of, a lot more interest in, in donations and philanthropic support um, in other kinds of, kinds of tie-ups just because it's potentially, you know, a big, big infusion of, of money and, and a chance to, you know, just get some solidity and, and stability into your business. Uh, because I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm with you. I think local news is extraordinarily important. Um, and I think about it a lot more now that I, I no longer live in New York and I, I go, Oh, the New York times is not a local paper. Huh? <laughs> this other, these other newspapers are kind of small. I, I, I've, yeah, no, no shade on the inquirer. I actually think they're, pretty good paper. But anyway, uh, it's, it's, it's an important issue and one that I think is going to remain even more pressing in the, in the new year. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Um, well, I guess to kind of round out this conversation, um, you know, any other trends specifically in the coming year that you think are going to be um, top of mind for publishers um, or for the way that publishers operate? Um, you know, I think as we mentioned, like e-commerce is a huge area of business. Um, we touched on events and how that that business is still kind of up in the air for a lot of reasons. But, um, you know, any other kind of themes or, or areas of um, revenue that you think are going to be, I don't know, hot topics for publishers this coming year? I guess for me and, and from what I had heard from other publishers, it seems like they're just trying to solve and determine what consumer habits are going to be long lasting and which were only temporary um, around the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And once you start there and try to solve for that question that can help guide you through next year in terms of where to move your business model. Um, you know, but I think just, I mean, and we touched on this in our earlier conversation, um, you know, thinking about how often you're going to want to be around a computer outside of work hours uh, beyond this year you know, little things like that are going to have huge implications for how media businesses invest and strategize. Um, and I think kind of, you know, media has always had to look in the crystal ball to help guide them in, in terms of what's coming next. So it's going to be a lot of guesswork, um, but it's also a good chance to kind of re-strategize and think thoughtfully about what we've and how we've been operating for the last six, seven months and, and how that can guide them moving forward. All right. Well, um, thanks so much, Max and Sarah. It was great speaking with you both. Um, and I will hopefully see you next year in person to a certain degree rather than over Zoom. But um, yeah, thanks so much for being on. Thanks. Thanks. All right. And stick around. Next, my co-host Tim Peterson sets up his own roundtable about marketing. Hey, I'm Tim Peterson, Senior Media Editor at Digiday. I'm going to welcome in our Senior Marketing Editor, Christina Monlos, and Senior News Editor, Seb Joseph, and we're going to talk about what happened in marketing and advertising this year and what that may set up for next year. Christina, Seb, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Likewise, Tim. Cheers. Absolutely. So <laughs> a lot happened in marketing and advertising this year, just like every other industry. Um, Seb, I'll start with you. What's the biggest change that you tracked this year? Yeah, where to start, where to start. I think when the world kind of changes as much as it has done in 2020, uh, you know, so do go-to-market strategies, right? Or at least that's what has kind of really stood out to me looking across the kind of the spectrum of advertisers that we cover. So, you know, businesses that were traditionally kind of reach-based advertisers are kind of being forced to act more like direct-to-consumer ones, right? So... You know, you can bet that that's a big part of the reason why Coca-Cola is reviewing all of its kind of media and creative kind of accounts simultaneously on top of, you know, the standard attempts to kind of get agencies to do more for less, right? So, you know, when, when those companies are reviewing, you know, these multi-million dollar accounts, you know, it, it feels like it's less about them being inherently unhappy with their current agencies as maybe it was, you know, during the kind of last round of kind of big media kind of reviews um, and more of, a, of an acknowledgement that, that they need to kind of do, they need different things from them, right? Um, and I think that's only going to kind of continue throughout next year as a lot of advertisers are, are, are forced to, you know, adapt to wider business kind of changes. And I think you see that in WPP's latest update. You know, the company is saying that, they expect commerce, technology, and I think experience work, right, to account for 40% by 2025. You know, it's worth around 20, it's worth around 25% today. So, you know, that, you know, just kind of in a nutshell, I think that would kind of summarize, you know, the, the biggest trend that I'm, I've taken away from kind of 2020 and I'm using that to sort of inform a lot of the uh, the trends I'm kind of looking at for next year as well. Got it. And that was something you've been covering for, I mean, I've been at Digiday two and a half years. You've been here longer, but I feel like the entire time I've been here, I've been reading your stuff on that trend. Is, is that something that you saw pick up, especially like in 2020? Or did you find there were like newer developments or iterations of that? Yeah, it's a good question. I think there is obviously because of what we do, there's a tendency to kind of almost 
make trends seem bigger than they kind of actually are. So, <laughs> yes, this is kind of, you know, as with a lot of trends, you know, coming out of 2020, you know, this is already something that was in play, albeit, you know, been severely kind of compounded by the fallout from everything. But um, I don't necessarily see kind of any new dynamics kind of really playing out. I think, you know, even been recently writing about, you know, the, the age old struggle and, and that's kind of remuneration between advertisers and agencies, right? You'd expect now would be a perfect time for advertisers to review that, right? Particularly if they're asking agencies to have a profound impact on their business models. And yet, from what we're hearing anyway, there's obviously change happening, right? Like it has to because you can't necessarily pay an agency um, for e-commerce or, you know, consultation sort of um, services in the same way that you would if they were kind of buying media. But, you know, what what changes we are seeing there are still kind of baby steps, like as opposed to kind of any real kind of drastic um, shift. So, you know, a lot of it is kind of like a hybrid model between like the FTE kind of model and, you know, paying for certain services on a, you know, on, on, a, on an ad hoc kind of basis. So, and I think that's probably symbolic of kind of just the broader uh, impact you've seen coronavirus have on a lot of kind of industry trends right now, right? Like even you look at, again, like I'm, I'm going all over the place, but like I think even you look at something like in-housing, it's the same thing. Like everyone thought in March, I remember we wrote about the fact that, you know, this might be a time where you see a lot of advertisers potentially kind of double down on it because, you know, it might have been a more cost-effective way to, uh, you know, navigate your way through this. And yet actually, you know, it's, it's been far from that. You've seen certain advertisers pause in housing, like, moves. We've seen we've seen others sort of accelerate them. So I think it's... I, I hope that the groundwork has been laid this year for some real drastic, well, not some real drastic, but some kind of real tangible next steps for kind of next year, whether that be on a remuneration front, which it looks like it will do, um, or, you know, kind of just a broader, you know, changes to, to how uh, advertisers structure, you know, even, even trading deals in the programmatic space with things like supply path optimization kind of picking up. It seems like the kind of, through line on all of that is advertisers tightening up the purse strings. Yeah, definitely. And I think as you tighten up the purse strings, you know, you, you your strategic kind of focus kind of adapts accordingly. And I think that'll be the kind of through line that definitely goes into kind of next year, advertisers and agencies having to do more with less, which isn't necessarily a new thing, um, but definitely feels like we will we'll have to see some innovation around that because, you know, how a business is going to, going to find these new pockets of growth that were obviously emerging. Got it. Okay. And with that, like speaking even specifically about media buying strategies, because I remember you were doing some great pieces in March just on how marketers were kind of like figuring out their commitments, how to get out of commitments, how to free up money, because I think at that point everyone was trying to figure out, I mean, not even just businesses, people, how do I squirrel away enough money so that if this gets really bad, I'm going to be okay. Um, how did that end up playing out throughout the end of the year? Like by the time we got to Q4, did that money come back into the market or has there still been uh, some limits on spending? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think I think it's probably kind of breaking it down into sort of planning and buying kind of shifts. And I think first probably need to address the myth of, kind of annual or at least long-term planning cycles, you know, like the concept of that, you know, where you plan and just watch the year go by isn't very common anymore. And I think maybe, you know, at the onset of the pandemic, you know, just based on some of the reporting out there, it kind of almost felt like that was how things were, you know, for the past five years, brands have become more nimbler and the planning cycles have gotten kind of shorter and shorter. Um, you know, I remember speaking to certain buyers and they were saying that, you know, they've instilled in their teams that three months is kind of long term. Uh, and the business cycle kind of, you know, it evolves and you have to constantly sort of assess it. Um, and I think so. I think while the pandemic has been, it 
has been disrupted, it hasn't necessarily impacted the actual kind of planning cycle length for the most part. Agencies, advertisers, from what I, from, you know, from the summary reporting, continue to plan on a kind of quarterly basis or at least on a sort of campaign by campaign basis, depending on, you know, the sector and the advertiser, et cetera. But I guess, you know, the real change was kind of, you know, in this, in, to adapt to shifts in consumer behaviour, right? Both the increased consumption of kind of media, but as well as consumers reaching a faster point of fatigue from a news cycle that was just, you know, relentless gut punch after gut punch. And, you know, we saw brands leaning more towards channels where consumption, you know, had increased. You know, you know better than most, right, in the connected TV, the streaming sort of space. Consumption of video, um, both linear and digital, social, digital content, all of that stuff was kind of up. And advertising dollars had kind of followed those, you know, those those consumption habits. We also saw that in audio and podcast listenership um, has also gone up. And so, you know, I remember speaking to people like BMW, right, about kind of, you know, how they were kind of looking to move more money into that space. So, so Christina, with what, you know, Seb was talking about, about advertisers kind of tightening up purse strings, but also like planning cycles, really shortening. Feels like it's never an easy time to work on the agency side. You talk to a lot of people at agencies. What were the ripple effects of what went on on the marketer side on agencies and the nature of their work in their business? Yeah, I mean, it, it's never an easy time to work in the agency business. It's funny because, you know, when I joined Digiday, um, I started by doing pieces about, you know, the agency business model being broken. Um, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And I think, you know, as Seb was saying, um, you know, the FTE model, uh, people are are looking at that again this year. And, you know, Um we're just seeing a lot of a lot of shifts with that. But I think overall, you know, if you talk to agency employees about this last year and, and what they've been doing, you hear a lot from people about how they weren't really able to take time off. Uh, their mental health was not as uh, working at an agency. Your mental health is always questionable, I guess. <laughs> but, but you... Uh, but, you know, um, having to replan and, and re um, do media plans like over and over and over again, um, you know, as these marketers have been like, oh, well, you know, I, I need to step back and, and press pause for a minute or, you know, um, we we need to like drastically change what what we were thinking that that has an effect on people. Um, and beyond just replanning, you have all of these businesses where, you know, they're in sectors like travel or, um, or restaurants. And, you know, the majority of an agency's business is, is maybe in these sectors that aren't spending, um, that aren't advertising because, you know, they've just been decimated by the pandemic. And, you know, you have a bunch of people who are really worried about their jobs. Um, it, it, you know, it, it's, it's definitely not an easy time, um, for people. And, you know, I, I've also heard from a lot of people who, who work in areas that were doing okay. I, you know, there's a source of mine who, um, you know, has worked on a bunch of big D2C brands, you know, um, who has an agency, um, that was doing really well. And I just heard from him and he was like, I'm done with the agency business. I don't want to do it anymore. And he just hit the breaking point. Yeah. Um, and you know, I don't know. I, I don't know where agencies go from here because you hear from people all the time that like working at an agency, um, you know, it sucks. And then, you know, you have a year that really, really sucks. Um, and unless things are, are really remade um, for, for the better, I don't, I don't see especially big holding company agencies retaining talent. I, I don't know. You look at what's going on with Dentsu and, you know, how uh, it's, it's being remade right now and working with consultants. And I don't know. It just doesn't seem like a good time to be on that side of the business. Got it. And I mean, that's something like agency people 
splitting off and setting up their own shops or going independent. Mm-hmm. That's not necessarily a new trend. Um, just like on the media no. side, people going independent isn't a new trend. But yeah, we have the Substack trend and people talk mm-hmm. about it like it is especially new. There are obviously new parts to it. With this agency you know, reaching a breaking point, is that just something that you're seeing accelerate or change in any capacity? Or is it just this is a cycle that repeats? I think it's a cycle that repeats. Um, You know, you're going to see it in in different areas of of the business. Um, You know, I I think with, take like 2008 and, and 2009, like that downturn, if you talk to people about being in the agency business, then, you know, you'd hear about a lot of these, you know, awesome creatives who had been laid off from these you know, stellar agencies who were like, okay, you know what, like, I'm just going to go create my own shop and I'm going to, you know, make this like crazy, cool, kooky place to work. And, you know, we're going to, um, not have the, you know, constraints of working under the holding company. Um, you know, we'll, we'll attract clients that way. And that worked for a while, um, for some of those independent agencies, but it's a very different business now. Um, and you're still going to have these, you know, creatives who are laid off, who are going to be starting shops. I mean, you have Greg Hahn, who's laid off from BBDO, starting Mischief. Um, like that, that's something that's already happened. But a lot of the other, you know, agency-like businesses that we've seen um, crop up at this time, those have been more like, creative consultancies or, you know, like it doesn't seem like people want to brand themselves as, as agencies as much, which is kind of interesting to me. Um, and you know, one, one other thing, um, that's different is, you know, with, with everyone working from home, like a cool culture or, you know, what was once deemed cool doesn't matter anymore if you're just like sitting in front of your computer doing your job. If your job sucks, your job sucks. You're not hanging out with your employees who, um, or your coworkers who, you know, you love being around. Um, no one really wants to hop on a Zoom happy hour. And if you do, I want to know why. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the, the, the like, stuff that would retain people before, um, it isn't really going to work. And the, and the stuff that will retain them now costs money. Like, you know, a stipend for someone to make their home office, that's money, better benefits, that's money. But those are the things that I'm hearing from agency employees are, you know, that's what they want. And, you know, it's a time in the business where, um, you know, payment windows are terrible. Uh, you know, Marketers aren't spending as much. Um, spending levels aren't what they were this time last year. I mean, it's just all around bad time. Hopefully, maybe a better time next year. Right. Yeah. Cause I mean, on the one hand, it looks like it seems like a terrible time to work in agencies um, as someone who's never worked in an agency and doesn't actually have to deal with that. <laughs> um, but on, on the one hand, it seems like, okay, a tough time to work at a big agency with all of that going on. But it also seems like a tough time to be at a small agency or independent because especially like with the longer payment windows, like it just seems like the clients would have more leverage and more power to kind of push you around. Seb, you talk to a lot of people on the brand side. Um, to what extent are they not only aware of all of this going on on the agency side, but is it something that they're like actually taking into account and making changes on their side in light, or is it just the John uh, Don Draper? You know, that's what the money is for. Do clients care, or are they just like we're paying you figure it out? I think increasingly clients care, right? And I think some of that is maybe reflected in the fact that you have these alternative holding groups, S four Capital you know, um, who who are obviously making inroads into the market, right, and continue to chip away at the kind of market share of their more established counter, counterparts. And, the, you know, I thought the fact that S4 Capital managed to win a large chunk of uh, BMW and Mini's European business this year, you know, that's, you know, that's a kind of telling, albeit unreported kind of milestone, right? Yeah. BMW aren't the most... 
they're not the most progressive of advertisers, you know, but they they want to be. They could have gone with an agency like, you know, FCB Inferno, who are also on the on on, on the um, pitch, you know, but they prioritised. I guess you could sort of sum it up because they've prioritised a business that was offering kind of flexibility and capability over kind of scale and uh, stability. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how the larger holding groups respond to that kind of shift. I think you've started to see, you know, of all the, you know, Christina mentioned um, the changes at kind of density, but you've, we've seen ever since kind of March, these big holding groups make massive, you know, employment cuts in order to, you know, A, they're kind of, they, they say this is all a response to kind of COVID, right? But, you know, they were looking for an excuse to kind of do this, right? And w- what better time to make those changes and it not have a massive impact on your share price, you know, during the kind of pand- a global pandemic and an economic kind of downturn. So I think, you know, next year, it will be interesting to kind of see how, you know, the larger holding groups are able to address some of the problems that Christina has mentioned, because I still think clients are in market now more than ever, right, for that expertise, you know, whether it's kind of e-commerce, which is driving media spend or increasingly, you know, because of the growth that's happening, connected TV, um, you know, programmatic expertise, right? Like we're seeing now more than ever clients attempt to consolidate their spending into fewer but better ad tech vendors. Um, and, you know, a lot of clients don't know how to do that themselves, you know, like they, 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 they don't know how to run an RFP. They don't know about kind of log file data. And so, you know, increasingly they are kind of turning to kind of agencies, but it's incumbent on the agencies to kind of show their value, right? Like I get it. Those businesses are under immense kind of strain um but it you know clients like to the earlier point clients don't necessarily care right like they're not really it does i don't get the impression that they want results yesterday i don't mm-hmm. get the impression that they you know they, they're going to be patient and wait for you know agencies to kind of figure things out because you know there's competition everywhere and there are enough uh, there are other places that they can kind of go to, albeit with varying degrees of kind of scale. But again, I point to that BMW um, example, like increasingly, you know, clients are prepared to do that, right? Even if it's just taking off a little chunk of kind of work in order to kind of test it out, like that appetite is 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 kind of genuinely kind of there now. So yeah, like I think kind of to your to your point, to your earlier kind of point clients are definitely kind of keeping an eye on how agencies kind of um respond to everything that is kind of happening this year and i think you know you'll know how serious they are you know depending on kind of how these this expected anticipated wave of reviews kind of pans out i think this year we saw a lot of accounts stick with their incumbents which kind of says that that was very much motivated by uh costs and kind of the need to kind of squeeze agencies harder but i think next year we may start to see you know some surprises right like who knows where or not sfl capital might kind of win you know the next big kind of global review or you know next 15 which you know is heavily weighted towards kind of tech you know they might you know end up kind of cleaning up so i think you know, to some degree, all bets will be off next year in the kind of wave of reviews that are going on, for sure. Martin Sorrell will be so happy with everything you're saying, Seb. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, though, right? Like, I think, like, I, I know, it, hates, it pains me to kind of do it, but I think those those businesses have done a good job at positioning themselves as the antithesis to, you know, the typical traditional, you know, agency model. They don't necessarily make money or, or they're not business models, predicated on media buying are they it's consulting sort of services it's kind of data strategy it's it's those sort of high margin offerings that you know that that they can kind of tap into versus you know the more commoditized end of the market which just isn't you know driving top line when it is driving growth but not the type of growth agencies are used to anymore well that's the thing that's so you know interesting about this year is that these are all like 
a lot of the issues that we've highlighted so far are issues that existed in the agency business already, and they're just exacerbated yeah. by a crisis. Yeah. And, you know, what's, I don't know, it's like, uh, you hear from people in, in the agency business, regardless of the kind of agency that they work for, about how, you know, the business model's broken, agency people give away so much of, of what they do for free, and that people need to change this. And it's like, you you know, you could take what I just said, and that could apply to any year in the agency yeah. business, honestly. And that mm. it's still a problem is insane. And I guess the thing that I, I'm really curious to see is like, okay, this has been a problem for a really long time. This business is broken. Um, you have all of these consultants coming in, taking more business. You have people, you know... I, I was talking to an agency this morning and their whole pitch is like, we're going to be a, tra- a new kind of media agency and we don't have the same baggage as, you know, all of the others. And it's like the agency business has allowed this to happen. Um, they know it's a problem. They, it's gotten so much worse in the last year. This massive cull that has happened has been so painful for so many people. Will anything actually change? Will like anyone do anything about the business model? Or are we just going to see the agency business shrink as it has been and, you know, more go in-house, more go to these consultancies, more go other places? I, you know, I don't know. I, I, I don't know what's going to happen, but that that is one thing that I think we'll probably have to follow a bit more next year. Yeah, definitely. You know, definitely. I think that's the that's the interesting thing. Like we haven't agencies for all the pressure they've been under, they haven't really kind of had to change mm-hmm. so much because the competition just hasn't necessarily, you know, been great. A lot of their problems are kind of more. They're more fundamental, aren't they, with mm-hmm. regards to kind of their actual business models as opposed to, you know, being disintermediated. Google and Facebook have shown no real kind of intention to kind of do that. You know, the likes of Accenture and Deloitte haven't really kind of, you know, made big inroads into the space as maybe people anticipated. Um, and which is why I kind of think, you know, these kind of new holding groups are probably that'll be the real litmus test, right? Like Mm. just kind of how, you know, how successful they can be at, you know, just, you know, just kind of eating into, because the the, the big holding groups aren't going anywhere, but if they continue to kind of lose share over in the kind of medium to, they're in the short to kind of medium term, you know, then, you know, you may have to see these agencies make even bigger kind of changes than they already are because to your point like what i've seen so far even the density stuff doesn't seem wholly kind of radical right um but these businesses are super tankers aren't they so maybe it's really about you know kind of doing these things step by step as opposed to kind of making big drastic changes because you know they have to you know they've got they've got shareholders to appease and so can only kind of do so much before it starts to kind of really affect Mm-hmm. share price profits etc right i mean i i i want to see what these what these agencies will do um and you know i i definitely expect we'll continue to see more agency consolidation at the holding company level i mean that's something we've seen quite a bit of this year um horrible names just horrible <laughs> alpha, alphabet <laughs> soup names that i please come on your agencies like Come up with a better name. Um, but, you know, uh, I, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I'll be interested to see what that consolidation will bring and, and how those yeah. agencies will be forced together. I mean, the AKQA gray of it all, leading with the AKQA name, so interesting, so strange. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I think a lot of it is incumbent on advertisers, though, right? Because... Mm-hmm. Like, the pressure just hasn't been there. Like, it's been interesting even kind of talking to people, you know, about what's going to happen next year. Um, it's been interesting hearing that, you know, despite the big hoo-ha that happened around transparency, when was it, three, four years ago? Yeah. There hasn't been much progression, right? Like, like No, there was that, then, yeah, there was a big, you know, A&A meeting that was happening yeah. in, in secrecy and then... Uh, yeah, I mean, there, it, it became 
another talking point. It was just like, yeah, yeah. we need to be better about transparency. We, so, we exactly. need to hold people accountable. Okay, yeah. do it. What are you doing? Um, yeah. All that seemed to happen is that procurement got more power and then, you know, um, put the squeeze more. And sure. that's kind of that's it. And I get it, right? That's like symptomatic of, you know, the fact that, you know, in, especially in those big companies, media buying got de-emphasized over kind of several mm-hmm. years, right? But particularly kind of this year when you're seeing all these kind of stats about how big digital is now and, you know, the fact that, you know, it's kind of overtaken kind of traditional and all that sort of stuff is. You can't really ignore that anymore. Like I know advertisers have, or CMOs have a lot of, you know, have a long list of priorities, but, you know, like something like, digital, online spend, whatever you want to call it, like, there has to be more rigour around that now because, like, you stand to lose a lot more if, you know, like, you, you, there are kind of, there are hidden costs being taken out of your, you know, out of your kind of media buying. And that, that affects, like, you know, when we're talking about programmatic, that could kind of affect, you know, you kind of winning auctions or not. So, you know, like, I think... You know, hopefully next year, well, no, not hopefully, like I know next year we'll start to see more advertisers interrogating that space more. And I think as that attention grows, I think agencies, that will kind of push agencies to kind of be a bit more innovative in that in that space, right? Like and have to adapt business models and, you know, like launch new initiatives, you know, in, in, in response to that but yeah I definitely think advertisers have played a role in that like they just haven't necessarily pushed agencies like hard to be inventive I know we're running a little long but um speaking of lip service and advertisers not pushing agencies necessarily or things advertisers can push agencies more on as well as themselves um diversity equity and inclusion like that was something everyone was talking about rightfully back in June after the killing of George Floyd. But it's also something that in all industries, but in the advertising industry, becomes something everyone talks about every couple of years. Whenever there's you know some tragedy that happens, um, you get agencies coming out talking about they need to do better, um, their employees, you know, coming out. Um, same thing, you know, on the brand's part or brands getting called out for not being inclusive enough with their marketing. And then it kind of fades and it feels like a lot of that has faded since then. I know at Digiday, all of us are planning to continue to cover diversity, equity, and inclusion a lot next year and see to what extent companies are actually following through on some of the pledges that they made over the summer. Um, Christina, like again, you speak to a lot of people within agencies. Do they feel like their companies, their employers have lost sight of this that they they made their big show over the summer and kind of can wave it away for now yeah i mean if you talk to um you know agency employees especially you know those not in the c-suite yeah that's what you'll hear is like oh okay so we had this conversation we made these commitments we were going to do this where has it gone and much of it is like okay well you haven't really done much um, you know, Seb, we worked on that piece in, in September and, you know, we got all those notes from like different agencies being like, here are all the things that we did. And it's like outline, outlining all of these different actions, but that, that never really seems to match up with, you know, the way that employees feel, um, you know, those, those agencies are, are addressing these issues. I mean, is that, that's kind of what you're still hearing, right? Yeah, definitely. It's that, it's that point, isn't it? Like, the proof will be in the pudding. Like, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, to your point, we're going to do better and, you know, this is a time of reflection and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, any anyone can make token gestures like hiring a diversity officer, um, especially as a knee-jerk response. But, you know, it, it fascinates me just... When you look at the job spec and you look at who these people report into, like how businesses think they can kind of, which is how companies are treating this. Like it's almost like a a PR exercise, right? Like I don't get how 
any diversity officer can have a real tangible impact on a business when they don't report into the CEO and they just treat it as a kind of spin-off to, you know, of, of kind of HR. It just you know, kind of blows my mind, especially now when there is so much um, information kind of out there and guidance on how to do this the right way. Um, it just feels like, you know, the industry is destined to make the same mistakes and, you know, we'll be having this conversation in another couple of years. Because yeah. let's face it, like, you know, this this came about a couple of years ago with the kind of hashtag Me Too movement. Like, it's the same mm-hmm. issue, really, at the end of the day. It's, you know, it's just, you know, that was about gender. This is about kind of race. So, like, it pains me to say it, but I'm still really cynical. Like, you know, like, yes, there are private marketplaces where advertisers can, you know, kind of make sure their, their media dollars are going to... Um, you know, uh, black-owned businesses, for example, um, have asked Group M have kind of both launched them. But again, like, how much of spend is really going to those um, businesses? And, you know, like, it'd be really interesting to kind of get an idea of kind of what, like, why advertisers are kind of doing it. Because if it's just about, you know, kind of PR, then I'm not, you know, then... You know, that's got a really kind of short half-life, right? But I think if it's, you know, if they've managed to kind of attach uh, some sort of business kind of goal to it and kind of, you know, link that to some real kind of value, um, then, you know, it'll be interesting. But, you know, a lot of those companies are kind of small, medium-sized kind of players, right? And so you can't necessarily offer these big advertisers the reach they're used to. So like, how do you square that off? Like, I don't... I don't know, but I I do know that I'm not ready to kind of believe that the industry has kind of reached an inflection point yet. Like, I just, I, I haven't seen enough to kind of, you know, convince me. Then on, you know, the other end of the spectrum, Seb, there was the advertiser boycott of Facebook back in yeah. July, which was very much about wanting, face, you know, advertisers trying to get Facebook to do better when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion, as well as misinformation and all of the other issues on Facebook. But that didn't really amount to much of anything, right? No, Facebook didn't change anything. And, you know, like, even brands like Patagonia, right, who, you know, kind of highly ethical, like, they were back on it. And yet, like, you really look back at what did Facebook actually change, Christina, Tim? Like, nothing. Nothing. Like, like Mark Zuckerberg was kind of really aggressive about the fact that advertisers all kind of be back. And that's the sort of thing that really kind of not winds me up, but just it makes it it makes it hard to buy into all of this stuff when client CMOs and marketers are telling you that, you know, they're serious and, you know, they're not going to spend you know, money on, they're going to take their dollars elsewhere and stuff like that. But it's like, no, you're not. Like, you're so tied to these platforms. Right. They're so tied to the platforms. And then it's also like, oh, your, your you know, $6 million is, is a drop in the bucket. Like, that's nothing compared to what Facebook is getting from all of these different businesses. And, you know, most of the, like, major marketers, um, they're, you know, if they, if they pulled their spend on Facebook, as we saw, it doesn't have that big of an impact. Like, yeah, all, all that happens is like, you know, CPM prices get a little bit better. D2C companies, small businesses might might do a little bit better for a little while. But, you know, Facebook is a juggernaut and it's going to continue to be. And, uh, you know, I don't I don't think advertisers actually have that much power to make the company change. Um, yeah. Maybe that's me just being a cynical jerk, but, you know. I, I think CMOs love to just like get on this, you know, they they just love to like stand out there and say they're making a point and that you should love their brand because they've like done this thing. And then, you know, there's, they're doing ethically questionable crap all the time. <laughs> it's just, but, yeah. I don't know. But, but my thing is like, what did it, like, what did it do? Nothing. Like, you know, you've got some brands that have said we're off it, you know, for, you know, the foreseeable future, Coca-Cola, Unilever, but like what, why were the other brands kind of doing it? Because it definitely wasn't about principles. Otherwise mm-hmm. they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't be on the platform kind of now. So 
And if it was a kind of PR exercise, then it was a really short-sighted one because people saw right through it straight away, or at least the kind of press did. Like, let's face it, consumers don't really care about that stuff. Like, mm-hmm. So I, I do, it was interesting covering it because it was kind of like, we've been here before. Right. You know, like, you know, it wasn't even really a boycott, was it? It was like a, a brief separation. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> and they came, but they, and they came, and they came running, running, and they came sort of running back. So, yeah, like, look, I think as if anything, like the proof will be in, you know, where the money ends up, right? And you know, I don't think if advertisers were looking to kind of put the squeeze on kind of Facebook, then that was probably the wrong way to kind of go about it, because you know, they're just like Facebook has already shown it doesn't really care. Um, Look, advertisers always and will continue to kind of talk out both sides of their mouths, right? Like that just seems like it's part and parcel with being a high-profile mm-hmm. marker, a, a big brand. And so, yeah, we'll see. I think that's a good place to end it on for as much as changes in marketing and advertising, <laughs> not enough changes. Seb, Christina, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having us, Tim. Absolutely. Okay, that's it for us in 2020. We will be back in the new year. Thanks for listening. Take care and have a great end of the year.